Well, thank you, and uh, it's great uh, to be back. Um, and uh, today, what we're going to do is talk about uh, the question of relationship and what the nature of relationships uh, are. Now, today is independent from yesterday, but nonetheless connected. So, if I can just connect it for you just for one, one second. Yesterday, we began by asking the question, what kind of creatures are we, human beings? And we talked about the relationship between that question and the question of what kind of, God, what, what kind of being, if a being at all, is God. And we talked about how answering those two questions tells us something uh, about um, what kind of relations we have with, with others. And so, uh, to put it very concisely, probably far too concisely, when we talked about Maimonides yesterday, the emphasis was very much uh, on reason and on intellect. And so the way in which one relates from a Maimonidean point of view uh, to God as well as to other human beings is through reason. Okay, it, That's what the relation is, is reason. We also talked about how Maimonides very much um, has a sense that uh, material reality uh, is inherently problematic. Um, and part of the problem uh, is as being uh, rational beings, and that's what being created in the image of God means for him, part of the problem is that we are, by definition, embodied. Okay? Uh, and so that was Maimonides. I contrasted Maimonides, I skipped many centuries, and contrasted Maimonides with Martin Buber, uh, who in the early 20th century wanted to argue, or did argue, that you know it's not reason that primarily constitutes our being. He does think reason is important, of course, of course, but it's relation. So what is relation then? Relation is encounter with either God or another person. Sometimes it's the encounter with God through another person. Uh, and relation is something that is always changing. We talked about in the context of Maimonides, his emphasis on reason is also an emphasis on uh, the eternal nature of God and the eternal nature of truth. Uh, and in contrast, Buber uh, very much emphasizes change uh, and response. And one of the things we talked about was the sense in Buber in which we are, by definition, receptive beings. We are beings who are affected, with an A, uh, by others. We are acted upon. And for Buber, this is... Uh, the basis um, of dialogue and what he calls the I-Thou relation as opposed to the I-It relation. Okay, so beginning from there, um, the question for us today is if we begin with a premise, and that will be our beginning premise today, that as human beings we are relational beings. Uh, we are constituted by our relations with others. And of course, Yesterday we talked about Maimonides' interpretation of Genesis 3. We also talked about Buber's view of Hasidism. The, the, uh, the context for all of our conversation is looking at Jewish sources and Jewish thinkers to see how they are extracting these ideas uh, about who we are. But if we begin with the premise that we're fundamentally relational beings, the question is, what does that mean? Okay? What, what does that mean to be fundamentally relational? What is the nature of relationship? And so I have here on uh, the outline, um, I, I put, what is the nature of relationship? 
relationships either between humans or between a human being and God and is there a role for judgment of others in relationships I realized on the train where maybe I have my great revelations I'm just kidding but I realized on the train what I wish I had put there in addition is something I think that's even more basic what, what does it mean to be uh, in relationship? Does it mean that we expect things from others, say God or the, another person? Uh, or is it that we owe things to other others, whether God or another person? Rights and duties, for those who are familiar with some of these kinds of discussions. Is being in a relationship a right? Um, or, or is it fundamentally a bad duty? Now, of course, the answer is that it's both uh, at once. But they're very different uh, ways of, of thinking about this. So, for instance, if you think of a parent-child relationship, um, does the child have rights? Does the parent have rights? Uh, it, it's, think about it. Interesting questions, and we're going to come back to, to some of these uh, issues. But let's look at one model, and the model, very briefly, is going to be Boober. Okay? So if you look at just your uh, number two, Boober... Uh, understands relationship and dialogue as about mutuality, okay? Not everybody has Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, no, no. So you, you're not missing, I mean, you don't really need the handout for this. Um, don't worry. Boober understands the I-Dow relationship as a relationship uh, of mutuality. And I'll just read you a quotation here. You, if you don't have an outline, you can see it later. Uh, it's from I and Now. Um, okay. The you encounters me but I enter into a direct relation to it. Thus, the relationship is election and electing, passive and active at once. The basic word I, you, can be spoken only with one's whole being. The concentration and fusion into a whole being can never be accomplished by me, can never be accomplished without me. I require a you to become, become I, I say you. All actual life is encounter. Okay, so I require a you to become I. I think I somehow inadvertently have a typo there. I apologize. So I, I require a you to become an I uh, in order to become I, I say you. So that's a, 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 a relationship of mutuality. Uh, it's very abstract, uh, but basically what Buber's saying is that the way in which I am truly an individual is in my relationship with another person. Uh, but it's, 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 it's mutual. That's also how the other person becomes an I. So one can also think about this as a relationship of equality uh, in a very uh, important sense. Now, if we look at the second quotation, which I'll just read to you, again, not, not to worry if you don't have it, uh, Huber similarly understands the relationship between the human and, and God in terms of mutuality. Okay? Uh, so he writes, this is also from IMF, the word of revelation is, I am there as whoever I am there. Okay, a reference, of course, to uh, Exodus 3.14. That which reveals is that which reveals. That which has being is there, nothing more. The eternal source of strength flows. The eternal touch is waiting. The eternal voice sounds, nothing more. Okay, so Buber's describing uh, his understanding of revelation here uh, using biblical language. Um, why is this a relationship of mutuality, as I'm suggesting it is? Uh, um, because um, basically, uh, Buber, if you look at it, just to repeat the last line, the, uh, the uh, eternal sources of strength flows, the eternal touch is waiting, and here's the point, the eternal voice sounds nothing more. God, from Buber's point of view, waits 
for the human being to to respond. Okay, that's that. So it, it, there's mutuality in that sense. Without the human response, there is no relationship. Okay, um, it's of course a complicated question what that means actually um, in terms of the human relationship to God for Buber. Uh, in some sense it's more straightforward to understand what that means uh, for Buber in terms of human relationships and just in case anyone's interested there was a time, I don't know if this is still the case, I don't think so, but there was a time I think in the um, 60s, 70s, maybe even the 80s where Buber actually was very um, very much used and drawn upon uh, not ju- in psychotherapy first of all uh, but also in terms of, um, what I think, what we would call organizational psychology. And in fact, once I was on an airplane, and it's always a dangerous thing on the airplane uh, in general, I think, <laughs> on a long flight, the person sitting next to me asked me what I did. Um, I told the truth. Um, and uh, then the person said to me, Are, do, you, do you know about Martin Buber? Uh, and I said yes, and this person was on her way actually to a human resources conference. Uh, and they were going to talk about Martin Buber. So she was very nice, but, it, you know, it was like a seven-hour flight. But, uh, you know, no, no, she was very... But my point is is that I think it's, 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 it's somewhat straightforward to understand what Buber means uh, in terms of human relations. Okay. Again, uh, his understanding in terms of the relationship with God, just to repeat uh, just one thing from yesterday, he, of course, as I said yesterday, uh, rejects halakha, um, he very much is a proponent of his interpretation of Hasidism uh, in which uh, the emphasis is on what he describes as encounter. Okay, so, so that's, the, um, that's the backdrop against which I'd like to approach two other 20th century uh, Jewish philosophers who also have uh, views of dialogue and who also very much emphasize that we as human beings are defined by our relations with one another. They also both very much emphasize that this is a Jewish point of view, uh, and in fact they both emphasize that this is what Judaism as such has to teach the world in a time of great need. Uh, But the difference between the two thinkers we're going to consider today and Buber is that the two thinkers we're going to consider today, Franz Rosenzweig and Emmanuel Levinas, don't understand dialogue in terms of mutuality. Rather, they understand dialogue in terms of what Levinas will call human responsibility uh, and what Rosenzweig will call love, which we'll come to very soon, to love. Uh, And for both of them, uh, it's not a question of I say you, you say I say you, I guess you say you. (laughs) Uh, Right? It's not a question of mutuality. Rather, uh, it's a question of what, when I encounter either another person or God, what I owe to that person, what I owe uh, to God. Okay? So we're going to look at what what they have to say and how they relate uh, this idea um, of this one-sided relationship in which I um, owe everything um, but I can expect nothing in return. It's, it's very stark. We're going to look at what they have to say um, in terms of uh, their claims uh, and also in terms of their different interpretations of different Jewish texts which they take to be supporting uh, this view. Okay, so 
I have here on three, but again, if you don't have it, it's fine. I say dialogue is judgment, not mutual affirmation. Basically, um, Rosenzweig's view of dialogue and of love is that dialogue and love are fundamentally judgmental. Okay? I am judged by he or she who loves me. Okay? To be loved is to be judged. It's not to judge, it's to be judged. Okay? Uh, and we want to look at uh, exactly what Rosenzweig uh, is trying to say here. Um, what, one of the interesting issues uh, about Rosenzweig is that he does very much emphasize love. Often people think of love as a Christian idea and not necessarily as a Jewish idea. Not that there's not love in Judaism, but that, that basically uh, from maybe a Jewish point of view, um, what's, what the prime value is, is maybe justice rather than love or its obligation uh, rather than love. Uh, but Rosenzweig very much is in dialogue with Christian thinkers uh, and he is using uh, love to describe what he understands as revelation and he's transforming that idea. So before we get to love, uh, let me say a few things about Rosenzweig. So Rosenzweig's born in 1886 um, and he dies in 1929. Uh, he um, died at the age of 43. He had ALS uh, or Lou Gehrig's disease or Rosenzweig, uh, Lou Gehrig had Rosenzweig's disease, uh, I always say. Um, and if some of you want to place Rosenzweig historically in terms of America, uh, I guess uh, Ty Cobb was born in 1886. Uh, and so now I've, I, I come from a family that loves baseball. I'm not one of them, but uh, I placed them for you. I, I'm not against baseball, but anyway. Um, okay, anyway, so, so who was this Rosenzweig? Um, he's uh, not this, yesterday I talked about this uh, generation of, of um, Jew, Jews, German Jews in particular, um, who were very, very well educated uh, generally, um, who really had achieved exactly what previous generations of German Jews had hoped they would achieved, achieve, but, but at the same time uh, felt very disconnected from and in fact knew nothing about Judaism. So who is this Rosenzweig? Um, he was an only child. Um, his um, mother wanted him uh, to become a doctor. Uh, he studied medicine. Uh, the family had really no religious dimension to their Jewish life, but they were very much identified as Jews. They celebrated Christmas, relevant to here, right? Qu quite, um, quite common amongst German Jews. Um, and Rosenzweig decided that um, he was not interested in medicine uh, and he became very interested uh, in history. And he did a doctorate in history with a very famous uh, German historian. And in fact, Rosenzweig was offered a university position, which was a very, very big deal uh, in Germany, generally speaking, and an even bigger deal for um, a, a Jew uh, who hadn't converted to be offered such a position. He turns down the position. Uh, he opens, you may have heard the term, Lairhouse, uh, an adult learning center, and dedicates the rest of his short life uh, to adult learning. Okay. So what is his relationship to Christianity um, and to Judaism? Okay. Well, Rosenzweig, um, like Buber, uh, writes at a time in which the First World War or the Great War has destroyed for young intellectuals any belief in progress. Okay. Rosenzweig was actually a medic 
in the First World War. He was on the Eastern Front. Um, he, well, this was the first time he had actually observed, observed Jews, meaning look, actually saw Jews who um, weren't assimilated German Jews. Um, and he actually was not initially interested in Judaism. He thought, like many of his generation thought, that Judaism was at best a historical fact. There had once been a Judaism, but it was no longer a living option. So what did Rosenzweig do? He did something that was quite common uh, amongst his peers and amongst various family members. He decided that he was going to convert to Christianity. Uh, but being the good scholar <laughs> that Rosenzweig was, he decided that in order for him to convert to Christianity, since he was Jewish, that he had to learn something about Judaism. Okay? And he begins studying uh, Judaism. And according to him, uh, one Yom Kippur, uh, he goes to a, a very uh, kind of a very small uh, synagogue uh, to pray, and he has this experience, uh, and he decides to remain a Jew. Okay, uh, and he, as I said, this is when he also decides to dedicate his life to adult uh, Jewish education. So he has a very dramatic. Uh, and I think a uh, very interesting life. He's continuously in dialogue uh, with um, Christians. Most of those Christians were converts from Judaism. Uh, and so that maybe gives us a little bit of insight uh, immediately in terms of what he wants uh, to say about love. Back to Martin Buber for one second. Um, I mentioned yesterday that Buber was uh, one of the many things he did was he was a translator uh, he, I mentioned that he tr first began to translate uh, Chinese poetry, later then translated the tales of the Hasidim, and he and uh, Rosenzweig embarked upon translating uh, the Bible uh, into German together. Um, and the way that they would do it was that, because Rosenzweig at this point was completely paralyzed, the way that they would do it is that Buber would offer a translation, um, and then Rosenzweig would blink his eyes uh, once I, once for yes, twice for no, I don't remember which may have been the other way around, in order to um, accept or not accept uh, the, uh, the translation. And Buber actually finishes the translations much later um, when, uh, in this, when Israel is actually a state, um, and that's a whole uh, interesting story in and of itself. Okay. So let's talk about Rosenzweig's thought. I mentioned he, he did a doctorate in history. The, the, the book he wrote from his doctorate is actually still in print. If anyone's interested in it, it's only in German. But it's an important book for all of you interested in Hegel's political philosophy. Uh, it's called Hegel and the State. Okay, That's like his main academic work. And then he published a book that we're going to talk about here called The Star of Redemption. Uh, and The Star of Redemption was written in part um, on postcards to his mother. <laughs> I mentioned he was an only child, so his, his mother really quite liked him. Uh, and I'm not sure she quite understood these postcards, but from, from the uh, Eastern Front. Um, and uh, it's a very difficult book, to say the least. Um, but the center of the book uh, is about Revelation. The book is very nicely divided uh, into three different... Um, uh, three different parts. Each of the parts has three sections. Okay, so that makes nine. And the fifth section, right in the middle, is the section on Revelation, which is what we're going to be talking uh, about today. So what, what is Revelation for Rosenzweig? I've already said that Revelation um, 
for him is love. Let's see what that means. Now, does everyone have the handouts now? That's okay, because I, I, well, let me say, what I want to look at not, is not yet, we're, I'm going to give you some time to look at the Rosenzweig by yourself, but I want to look at what Rosenzweig begins uh, his book, this discussion of Revelation with. It, it's, it's a quotation from the Song of Songs, 8-6, and here it's translated from the German as, love is strong as death, okay? Uh, those of you familiar with the Song of Songs. I want us to think about what that means, love is strong as death. One might think that what that means is love conquers all, right? I, I think, would that be a fair interpretation, just of those words right Not there? Impossible. I'm sorry? Not impossible. Not impossible. Okay, love conquers all. If death is what defines us as finite beings, love is as strong as death. Love is as fundamental to um, our lives as death is. Now that's true okay? but I think we're missing something here in this translation of love is, is strong as death uh, and so if you do have um, your uh, outlines now yes? still missing, okay well what I'd like you to do, get together with someone just for a minute um, to, to, who has an outline to, okay I'll give you mine in one second after I say this um, I want you to compare you all have the JPS here um, right? Compare Song of Songs 8-6. Look at it in the English and if you can look at it in the Hebrew also. And then I want you to look at Genesis 47-9 and Isaiah 19-4. Okay? And maybe let's all just do this together. Do you have the outline? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's on, it's on the outline. Okay. Can someone, let's, let's do this together. Okay? Who would please read um, for me uh, for all of us, uh, Song of Songs 8-6 um, in both the English and the Hebrew. I see. Was that an I will? Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, so if you if you look, the JPS gives I think a better translation, not surprisingly, for love is fierce as death, um, and then the next phrase is passion is mighty as Sheol. However, you say that in English. Okay, so. Um, what, what is the word that's being translated here as fierce? Okay, azah. Okay, and what is then the word that's being translated as mighty? Mighty. Okay, good. So what I, the other two verses that I asked you to look at uh, both have both verbs in them, um, azah and kasha. And I think that looking at those other two passages just very quickly, I think hopefully will give us a way into understanding what Rosenstein is doing uh, with his discussion of love and the Song of Songs. Okay, so let's look at Genesis 47.9, if we may. Sure. Um, I, 102, I think. Okay. Um, can 
someone uh, read that in English and Hebrew, please? Did I get this one? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've often, it, it's 497. <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I apologize. I, unfortunately, you do that a lot. Um, okay, so let's look at 497, which is on page 107. Okay, um, so can someone uh, read that, please? Okay, thanks. English. Uh, cursed be their anger so fierce and their wrath so relentless. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. Okay, so so who can say in, in Hebrew, do you see the same uh, words being used um, as were used in 8.6? So how, how are those um, words being translated here? Okay, so so fierce, relentless. Okay, and what's the context here? Can anyone tell us just quickly? It's, it's well, I go ahead. Yes. Um, it's the blessings that Yaakov gives to his sons at the end of his life. Okay, good. And and the and the context of this particular okay, verse. Uh, maybe. Okay, and and so what is what is the context of his. Uh, the blessing to Shimon and Levi? Um, like a, a, a reaction to like what they did, what they did to the town they destroyed. Yes. Okay, exactly. So it, it's a criticism, I mean, among other things, of Shimon and Levi's violent nature. Okay, so the use of the term, what's translated here as, as fierce, um, is, um, it, it's got a negative connotation. Is, is what I want to suggest. Okay, so let's look, um, and hopefully I didn't reverse the numbers here. Isaiah 19:9, which should be on page 886. I may have. Oh, 19:4. Sorry, that's what I put on the sheet. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, 19:4. Okay. Okay, can someone uh, read that either in English or Hebrew, please? Yes, thanks. Okay, good. So you see the same two verbs there, right? Kashe and Oz. Okay, and how are they translated here? Harsh and ruthless. So the same word I just mentioning that is used in in eight six in the Song of Songs, which 
In English, in the Rosenzweig, we have strong as death. Um, in the JPS, we have fierce. It's here in this context described, uh, is translated as, as ruthless, okay? Uh, and the context of um, Isaiah's uh, discussion here um, has to do with the way in which the Egyptians will be punished. So my, my, the reason I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time on this is because I want you to enter into uh, Rosenzweig's mindset, uh, despite this English translation, uh, in which love is not um, a good feeling that makes you feel good. Okay, Love is fierce. It's ruthless. I even like ruthless better. Okay, There's something about love, or love is, judgmental. Love is commanding. It's not affirming. Okay, uh, And what I'd like us to do now um, is to think about the Song of Songs, which is, of course, a giant topic, and specifically chapters 6 through 8. Um, I would like you to, to read those, and I'd also like you to read um, the Rosenzweig, um, the first page of the handouts, um, the, f- the first... Um, the first four pages, I mean it's really two pages uh, of the Rosen's Flag handout. So let's um, take, um, let's see if we can do that in 20 minutes. If you don't get through the Rosen's Flag, don't worry. Uh, it's not very, uh, always very clear. But I want you to focus on this issue um, of love as fierce uh, and ruthless. Okay, so let's take do that in 20 minutes, but looking also at Song of Songs, chapter 6 through 8. Okay? Okay, well, why don't we um, start again? Uh, there's, uh, there's more, I'm sure, uh, to say um, and to read, but let, 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 let's um, begin again. Okay, let's begin um, with the Song of Songs, which is obviously um, a a very enormous topic, how to interpret uh, the Song of Songs. But if you look at just chapters 6 through 8, how would you describe the kind of love uh, that we read about? And what I mean mean by that is, is this a uh, mutually affirming love? Is this a kind of love in which, um, you know, uh, everything is very happy? Yes. First of all, it seems this particular piece of it is very physical. Yeah. It's also it's to be pretty one-sided from the point of view of what I assume is the male. So, as <laughs> someone else's uh, daughter, uh, no, 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 uh, no. It's an, it's it is a bit, yeah. Okay, so it's 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 one side, yes. Yeah. Okay, good. So it just so everyone heard that it's what you said. Um, it's they never speak to one another. It's expressed, or they're speaking to the other, but not in the presence of the other. Um, and so it's 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 use use the word uh, dysfunctional. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, let, let me describe it maybe like this. It's 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 a love that um, is not fulfilled, 
ultimately. It's, it's a, a love that is uh, striving uh, for love. It's uh, something that um, is not um, ultimately consummated, and I don't mean that just in a physical sense. Um, it's the longing, maybe that's the best term for it, love as longing, love as painful in that sense, love as fierce in that sense. Um, and I think this is very much uh, what Rosenzweig has in mind, and I think this is why he begins uh, with, um, with the Song of Psalms here. And by the way, anyone who is now really, really interested in reading The Star of Redemption, he has more to say about the Song of Songs uh, in the same book, um, if, you're, if you're interested. So let's look at what Rosenzweig uh, has to say now about uh, revelation and love. Okay, so he, I'm going to come back to, to the very beginning um, in, in a minute, but what I would like you to look at is if you look at um, pages 174 and 175, that's the back of the first sheet, uh, under monologue, okay? Uh, I'll just read the, from the underline there. To the eye there responds in God's interior a thou. It is the dual sound of I and thou in the monologue of God at the creation of man. But the thou is no authentic thou, for it still remains in God's interior. And the I is just as far from already being an authentic I, for no thou has yet confronted it. Only when the I acknowledges the thou as something external to itself, that is only when it makes the transition from monologue to authentic dialogue, only then does it become that I which we have just claimed for the primeval nay become audible. Okay, uh, We'll leave those last three words out for, for what we're doing here. But what, what is he saying here? Um, he's suggesting uh, that uh, at creation, uh, and he has more to say about creation uh, in the Star of Redemption, but at, when, when God created the world, um, God is still, Rosenzweig is claiming, having a, a, a monologue with God's self, okay? Um, and it's only uh, with revelation that dialogue becomes possible. Now, there's lots we could say about this, what actually he means by creation and revelation, uh, etc. But what I want to point out is that authentic dialogue um, for Rosenzweig, as we see here, uh, begins when the eye acknowledges something external to itself. Okay, so there's a fundamental um, inequality about the relationship. Uh, you have to, uh, he's suggesting, recognize that the other person or God is completely separate from you. If we go back to Genesis 3, just very briefly, to the Garden of Eden, um, from Rosenzweig's point of view, it's only because Adam and Eve are banished uh, that they can eventually, uh, human beings can eventually have a dialogue with God. Separation is necessary for relation. Okay. Now, um, what's important for us to see is that even now, when we've just said this, what, what Rosenzweig has to say about authentic dialogue, even now, uh, this still isn't uh, really dialogue for Rosenzweig. Okay, the, the, the prerequisite is this separation, the I knowing that the other, whether God or the human being, is completely outside of itself. What does it take uh, for 
real dialogue or love uh, to take place if we read on. Um, what happens? He talks about the garden here. What, what happens in the garden? God is calling, right? Uh, where art thou? Right? The question, where art thou? Um, and, and what happens? He interprets here um, th- that what happens is that um, Adam, in responding to God, basically hides behind Eve, blames Eve, blames the serpent, and that this response, Adam's response, is not a real response. Okay, and so if we now look um, at page 176 um, of, of the Rosenzweig, um, under uh, hearing, um, here, let me go actually a, little, a few lines above that. Uh, to God's where art thou? The man still kept silence, silent as defiant and blocked self. Does everyone see that? Now called by his name twice in a supreme definiteness that could not but be heard. Now he answers, all unlocked, all spread apart, all ready, all soul. Here I am. Here is the I, the individual I, as yet wholly receptive, as yet only unlocked, only empty, only without content, without nature, pure readiness, pure obedience, all ears. So, so what does that mean? Anyone? Let's, let's put it this way. Um, is uh, the, the response, here I am, um, adequate for Rosenstein. In that he's defining himself as the eye. Okay, good. He is defining himself as the eye, absolutely. But notice he says, as yet wholly receptive, as yet only unlocked, only empty without content. So for him, this is the first step. Okay, so what, what is then, what then happens? Okay, what, what, what happens then? Adam's not uh, quite there. If we, if we read on. What does uh, the, the lover say to the beloved? Now we're not talking about Adam anymore. So what we could say that the lover says, or God says, uh, where are you? And the human being responds, here I am. Uh, and we could leave it at that, right? Um, but Rosenzweig says that's not what's going on, Okay. The lover says, where are you? The beloved is, says, here I am, but that's empty. What happens next? Well, if we look on 177, there's an imperative. What is the imperative? The lover says to the beloved, love me. Okay, so love is a command. <coughs> this is Rosenzweig's claim. Whether it's in the form, whether, whether the other is another person or God, uh, and he's quite explicit in the little bit of the Star of Redemption. We've read it also elsewhere that um, one has to speak about uh, um, God in this way in human terms. So there's not really for him this absolute distinction uh, between speaking about God as lover and the human being um, as lover and beloved. Okay, and we can come back back to that. Okay, so so there's this imperative: love me. That's the command. Is that a question? Okay. Well, here I am. The God commanding love. So we haven't gone from there yet. 
Okay, good, good. Thank you. That, that's very helpful. Right. So, so there is the, the, the identity, as you're calling it, uh, the here I am, is the first step. But the second step has to be this, this command. Okay, let's, let's turn over because um, we're still not at the final step. <laughs> okay, so love is commanded. Yes? Thank you. That's an excellent. That's an excellent question. It's uh, just um, uh, repeated, I think, is that, or comment. The, the comment is that uh, with with Adam and with Cain, uh, the here I am comes after an attempt to hide from God. Later on, um, say with Isaac, for instance, um, it, it does take. He doesn't respond immediately, uh, but he does. He doesn't try to hide from God. Um, and so you've asked to, to say something about that. Well, I, th- I think that's a very um, important point. I think that's why Rosenzweig is saying the here I am uh, in terms of um, Adam. Uh, but I think he would also say this for any human being as such. Um, the here I am is, is just, it's just the very beginning. Uh, it's not um, as often um, in, in certain circles, and, and actually Levinas does this as well, uh, Levinas will claim that the here I am is uh, is responsibility. It is uh, uh, it is everything. Uh, but Rosenzweig wants to say it's not uh, everything, and I think that's that's extremely important. It's not everything one because uh, you haven't heard what the other has to say. The other de- makes a demand on you. That's the claim. God says, "Love me." Okay. Well, what happens then? Okay, I, I, um, we, we, we're just going to talk about this very, um, very briefly. If you look at 178, the last, uh, the last heading there is shame. Okay, shame is very um, important here for lover, for Rosenzweig. He says the beloved's admission of love responds to the lover's demand of love. The lover does not admit his love. How should he? Okay. And Rosenzweig goes on to say that the way in which the um, beloved ultimately admits his love is to say, and this is a quote from Rosenzweig, is to say in response to love me, in response to the demand to say, I have sinned. Okay? What does that mean, I have sinned? Once again, he's using what we often uh, would associate as maybe a Christian idea uh, to uh, reinterpret this idea in what he claims is a Jewish way. So what, is it, what, what does it mean for him, to, for the shame and the I have sinned, as being really uh, what it ultimately takes to have dialogue? I think what he means is that um, in response to the command of God, uh, or the command of another human being, uh, it's not enough uh, to say, uh, okay, I hear you. What is also necessary uh, is to recognize that in your previous state of being, um, when you didn't think you had to respond to anybody else, whether it's God or another human being, that there was something false and wrong about that. So the I have sinned 
is a recognition that our fundamental orientation is actually towards the other. And we've sinned, Rosenzweig's claiming, because we were wrong in not recognizing that. And we only recognize that when we are commanded to love and therefore can respond by acknowledging, and in fact that's what he calls an acknowledgement, uh, by acknowledging uh, that our previous way of being uh, was inherently problematic. Okay? So it's a very, um, it's very, depending on how you look at it, um, it, it, it it's very uh, austere. It's very, um, it's very um, harsh in a certain way. Dialogue, is, it's not that God comes along or another person comes along and says, hi, um, I like you, and you say, oh, and then you say, oh, I like you too, okay? Um, it's, it's not that kind of affirming sort of thing. It's, it's instead that one is awoken from uh, one's own solipsism, um, and the only way you can actually adequately respond to being awoken is to recognize um, your prior sinful state. That's what love requires, okay, according to Rosenzweig. And that's what revelation is, according to Rosenstein. Okay. Sinful state. Well, right. Okay. Well, sinful state meaning when he says I have sinned, the sinful state for him, uh, which can only be recognized after revelation. Okay. Uh, the sinful state is that prior to being commanded to love, um, the self uh, is one way of putting it is, is self-absorbed. The self thinks that life is all about uh, satisfying itself, and that—that's the sin. But that—that that sinfulness can only be recognized when the other breaks through the self-solipsism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. So one might ask the question: What does this have to do with Judaism? Okay, or with Jews? Good question. Uh, in fact. Um, Rosenzweig's, the third part of, of, of the Star of Redemption, uh, deals explicitly uh, with Judaism, and I want to just talk about that a little bit in terms of how he connects uh, all of these ideas. Of course, it has something to do with Judaism in that Rosenzweig's reading biblical text. Elsewhere, he does bring in some rabbinic material, uh, but one could argue, um, you know, this is just, uh, he, he's just using these, this material in order to articulate a kind of modern uh, theology, which is all true, okay? And in fact, if you look at Revelation here, this part on Revelation, the central part of the star, uh, it's, it's very individual, obviously, right? It's, it's not about a collective. Uh, it's not about um, people, a peoplehood, okay? It's, 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 it's just anybody, okay? I think that's quite intentional. Um, just as I mentioned yesterday that uh, Buber believes that uh, modern people and not just modern Jews Decontinism. So too, Rosenzweig very much believes that modern people and not just modern Jews need to uh, recognize that revelation is possible, is still possible in the modern world. And this is what we see in part two. So let's see, though, what Rosenzweig has to do, um, has to say about Judaism and the way this all connects up. But before we do that, let's, and this is, this is why, um, this is the connection, let's look at 156, that's the first page. Uh, and let's go back to a topic we've explored here and there, uh, which has to do with uh, gender. 
Because in this first paragraph on 156, Rosenzweig does um, have something to say about women and men. Okay, if we look at the last sentence of the first paragraph, or um, can someone just read that, or would you like me to read? I'll read it. Uh, Once touched by arrows, a woman is what man only becomes at the Faustian age of 100, ready for the final encounter, strong as death. What does that mean? Okay. Uh, well, it means many things, <laughs> and I, I'm leaving out much. But what I want to suggest to you today is that, interestingly enough, um, this provides us one way of understanding actually how Rosenzweig understands Judaism. Okay, w- one way. And what, I, what I'm saying here is Rosenzweig understands Judaism actually uh, like um, the, 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 the woman uh, who already um, is ready for the final encounter, unlike the man. Okay? So let's look um, now at uh, the um, third, page, third page of the Rosenzweig where it says, Book One, The Fire or Eternal Life. Okay? So what do I mean? So what, what, is, what does this mean exactly? Well, Rosenzweig, as I said, is, is very much in dialogue with Christians, most of whom, as I said before, are converts from Judaism. Okay? The book is called The Star of Redemption. Um, there could be many reasons it's called The Star of Redemption. Some people say it's creation, revelation, redemption, or the triangle. Uh, God-man-world is the other triangle. But I think that, uh, and this is what he says, uh, I think that the best way to understand the star of redemption is uh, not as a star of David, but as like an actual star, uh, in the sense that what he's saying is that um, the Jewish people are the fire, the inside of the star, uh, and Christianity, uh, that's the rays of the star coming out from, uh, from the, the, the center fire. Okay, that, That's what I think he means by uh, the star of redemption. And this is what he says right here. He says, Blessed art thou who has planted eternal life in our midst. The fire burns at the core of the star. The rays go forth only from this fire and flow unresisted to the outside. Um, okay, so what, what does this mean uh, exactly? Well, part of what Rosenzweig is trying to do here uh, is to invert... Uh, a lot of what is called Christian supersessionism, which simply means the idea, the Christian idea, not all Christians believe this, but, but it is part, large part of the historical tradition. The, the idea is that Christianity has superseded Judaism. Okay? Uh, so Judaism is um, always trying to catch up to where Christianity is, and basically Christians are waiting for Jews to acknowledge the truth. Uh, and some of you may be familiar with the image of the blindfolded synagogue, um, which one can see in various churches. The idea, and that's supposed to represent Judaism, uh, where the, the Jews are blind and stubborn uh, to the truth. So Rosenzweig is quite aware of all of this, um, and he's writing in a context um, in which um, not only is he writing to Jews who have converted to Christianity, but he's also writing in a context in which um, Jews and Judaism are not very popular. Okay? He's writing in Germany uh, between the wars. So what's he doing here? Uh, he's inverting this kind of su- Christian supersessionism. Super what Rosenzweig's saying is that Jews 
are already where Christians need to be going. So he's inverting it, right? So the rays of the star only, are only exist because of the star's uh, center. So if we think back to that uh, line um, at, uh, at the beginning of book two, that a woman is what man only becomes at the Faustian age of 100, ready for the final encounter, strong as death, that's also how Rosenzweig understands Christian, uh, Judaism. Is Judaism's already achieved what Christianity's uh, only hoping for? But it goes further, okay? So if you look at just the underlying sentence that I have here uh, for you under Book One, the fiery the eternal life, there's this sentence: "Bearing witness takes place in bearing uh, two meanings, but one act in which eternal life is realized." Okay? What does that mean? Well, there's a play in the German here that doesn't come out in the English. Okay? What Rosenzweig's playing on is this term uh, Zeugen and Bezeugen, which basically can mean uh, procreation and it can also mean generation in the sense of generating ideas. Uh, and um, it also can mean witness in different forms. And so what he's emphasizing here in this sentence that doesn't come out uh, very well in English is this idea that the embodiedness of the Jewish people uh, and an embodiedness which, which is most captured by um, giving birth, okay, by having children. Um, this is what Jewish revelation is. And Jewish revelation in the form of the Jewish people uh, has already achieved what the rest of the world, Christianity specifically, is trying to achieve. Okay? Um, if we look on uh, 299 on the same uh, Xerox page, um, he talks about the Jewish community as a blood community. Okay, He really is quite provocative here. He, he knows what he's doing, and whether or not this is a dangerous game, I leave to you to, to think about. But I, uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, and he says here, um, I'm reading um, a few lines from that first paragraph up, uh, for it alone, that's the Jewish people, the future is not something alien, but something of its own, something it carries in its womb, and which might be born any day, while every other community that lays claim to eternity must take measures to pass the torch of the present onto the future, the blood community, that's the Jewish community, does not have to resort to such measures. It does not have to hire the services of the spirit, the natural propagation of the body guarantees its eternity. Okay? So this is for him uh, where Judaism comes in. One way of, of thinking about it in relationship to this discussion of Revelation uh, in the second part of the star is that Rosenzweig seems to be suggesting that Jews who are living fully Jewish lives don't even need that revelation because for them, Jews living fully Jewish lives, their very being, their very existence uh, is revelation and Jews exist there for the sake um, of uh, for the sake of, of um, the rest of the world. They are the, the, the fire that makes revelation possible for everyone else. Now, I want to say something about the um, the uh, the political and theological implications of Rosenzweig's claim. Uh, if you turn to the the last page of Rosenzweig on 397. Um, the law of humanity, birth and rebirth, uh, to contrast here Judaism uh, with Christianity. Okay, um, 
from Rosenzweig's point of view, uh, Christianity is always about rebirth. One has to always become a Christian. One is not born a Christian. Um, he he, he um, quotes here, uh, um, Christian life begins with rebirth. Birth lies outside it in the first instance. Thus it must seek to lay a foundation for its birth and its rebirth. It must remove the birth from the manger and Bethlehem into its own heart. Were Christ born a thousand times in Bethlehem, but not also in you, you would still be lost. Okay? And this he again uh, contrasts with Judaism. What are the political implications of what he's saying? Rosenzweig was what he called a non-Zionist. Okay? He's writing in the context of the rise of Zionism as a a national movement. He was not an (laughs) anti-Zionist. Okay? Uh, but he very much believed that Judaism was fundamentally diasporic. Um, and he felt that if there was a settlement of Jews in Palestine, that that was a good thing only insofar as it brought, would be, bring Jews together to live Jewishly together. Okay? So he wasn't against that. In fact, spoke to many Zionist youth groups uh, and, and thought that was good. But from a theological point of view and from a political point of view, he believed uh, that Judaism uh, had to remain, uh, and Jews had to remain self-contained um, and separate from the rest of the world, not to be a nation uh, like other nations. Um, and so, um, I leave you with that in terms of Rosenzweig. Um, I'm happy to talk more about it at, at, at some point if people are interested. Uh, but what I hope you've seen is the way in which um, he. Um, connects this understanding of dialogue as commanding to revelation and the way in which his understanding of revelation is is very much a piece with his understanding of Judaism uh, as that which or Jews as that people uh, who have already achieved revelation through their very bodily existence okay um, and his view very much that uh, the goal of Jewish life should not be to become a people like all other people. Okay? Because if, if that would happen, from Rosenzweig's point of view, uh, you know, the star would burn out. Um, so it would be not just bad for the Jews, but it's bad for the whole world because there would be no rays. Uh, and so Christianity for him serves an important function, uh, but it it's always serves this function as secondary uh, at very best to Judaism. So lots of people think that Rosenzweig, because he wrote a lot about Christianity, uh, is very interested in Christian-Jewish dialogue. Um, that's true, but it's only true if one understands that for him, dialogue is judgment, as I said. Judaism uh, and Christianity, they, they judge each other. Um, it's a harsh relationship. It's not a happy and mutual relationship. From Judaism's point of view, Christianity is at at best, second best. Uh, and from, Christ, from the Christian point of view, uh, Rosenzweig writes elsewhere in the star, uh, there's always the worry uh, that Christians aren't the real thing. And Rosenzweig, in fact, connects anti-Semitism to that Christian worry. Yes? To me, this seems very theoretical, but on a practical level, how do Jews express themselves as Jews? How do they feel about Muslims? Okay, yeah. okay that's, a, um, that's a big question about um, halakha. Um, let me just say, though, before wh- where it's not only theoretical. I, I mean, and I do want I will say something about halakha. 
I mean, from one could argue that on the basis of the Star of Redemption, he has other writings, but I'll leave them aside. That actually, that Rosenzweig is describing Haredi life. Um, and the, he's giving a theological um, and philosophical and political justification for that. Did he live a religious life? Yes. Uh, he lived a religious life. Um, he, um, he was a Balchuba, because, you know, he didn't grow up with this. Uh, and if we look back at what we saw in terms of his understanding of Revelation, the content being love me, um, he, um, he is clear that um, that is not law as such. Uh, but he does argue against Martin Buber in a series of letters that are called the Builders uh, that law or halakha is absolutely necessary. So if you want to summarize, like when you talk about Revelation, step one is here I am, step two is love, the commandment of God, so would step three be the Jewish life or love Um Well, I think step three, again, is I have sinned. Um, I think it's, in, yes, I mean, it, it would be live Jewish life halakhically if you are someone like Rosenzweig, um, who uh, whose primary um, experience of the world is not fundamentally Jewish. Okay, but for Jews like the various Haredi communities, um, they don't need num- they don't need any of this stuff. That would be his claim. Yes. Uh, one interesting thing I think that answers that a little bit is that uh, supposedly. I read, it, I read it wherever. Uh, he didn't wear tefillin. He did a lot of almost everything, but he needed it to speak to him in some way, to be revealed to him. Uh, so that it's not a past tense. It was revealed to us, and that's why we're better. It's constantly being revealed to us if you're listening during prayer or during whatever or other life you're choosing to live. But, but it's a living dialogue that we're having, and we follow halakha as it makes sense to you with love and with all these other things. I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, for those interested in Rosenzweig, there's kind of controversy over this issue. I mean, one way in which it makes it tricky to talk about what he actually thought in terms of his life is that he did die very young at the age of 43. In the last eight years of his life, he was completely paralyzed. No, so it's, it's hard to know where his mature thought may have gone. Um, Pretty mature. At 20 when he was writing this or whatever, I mean, he was a, a precocious person. Right. I, I guess my, 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 that was just my way of saying, no, for sure, he was quite precocious, but, but I, I'm just trying to say, that I don't think he has a full halakhic philosophy worked out, either in his personal life or in his writings. Uh, but, but it is clear that he does think halakha is, is very important, but it's very important because it's based upon uh, this command. He has a famous distinction between gazettes and gabot. Gazettes meaning law and gabot meaning command. Uh, and there's a difference between law and command. Uh, command is what's most fundamental, uh, but law does come from command. If we go back to the Buber for a second, where Buber says the eternal voice sounds nothing more. For Rosenzweig, the eternal voice does sound, but there's more that comes uh, with it. Yes? Um, I guess my question is, if Revelation is achieved, like achieved in the state of being, then does Rosenzweig have, um, does he see love as something that can be dynamic or can there be progress in very positive intensity? And also, what, what are these views of covenant? Because I guess, you know, like if he's, if he's looking into text, textual sources, then there are, I mean, 
say that there are stages of a developing relationship? Okay, great question. Um, so the two questions are, um, does he think love is dynamic in, in any way, right? And then this, the second question is about covenant. I think, it, I think what's very important about that first question is that Rosenzweig does think love is dynamic, but he thinks that the dynamic dimension of love as revelation is the job of Christians. Okay? Um, he thinks that it's not dynamic from a Jewish perspective, except internally in terms of how Jews live in Jewish community. Uh, but he, he very much thinks that it's the job of Christians to convert the world to Christianity, uh, except for the Jews. Okay, and and so it's an int- it's I, I'm I'm really emphasizing these things because I, I, he's a very complicated you know provocative thinker uh, in in saying this. Uh, second of all, in terms of covenant, um, what's interesting is that he has uh, a very strong conception, as we've seen, of peoplehood, uh, but I think a less strong conception of covenant, um, and I think that that's that's an interesting tension. Uh, in his work that I, that he never really um, worked out. Maybe if he if he lived longer. Uh, I, what, another way of saying this would be that um, there's a real tension between just what we saw in part two um, of the star and then a little bit we read in part three. He doesn't really work out how, how it goes uh, together. Um, and so when he does talk about a relationship with God, uh, it's the relationship with the individual to God. Um, Okay, so the question is, how, well, how would Rosenzweig deal with assimilated Judaism? His, his own. Right. I mean, that was his yes. own, and I yes. he, he had an emphasis on adult yes. and that yes. sort of thing. So, if you want the Jews to remain living within the nation, then I guess that, that, that proves the revelation. So you have to guarantee, in a sense, that they remain proof of revelation? Yes. Okay, okay, great question. I mean, I think everything you said, you've, you've given your own, you've given the answer. I mean, which is that... Um, he does right would see assimilated Jews um, or, or any uh, any people who were not had not experienced revelation as being in this prior state um, and, and of of um, sinfulness. Though for, I, I want to emphasize, and this is this is a, a complicated issue, but Rosenzweig doesn't see that prior state as fundamentally horrible or depraved in the way in which, say, in a Christian context, you would see it. It's just um, it's limited. I think that's maybe a better way of describing it. It's limited. It's not yet fully human. Uh, but there's truth in it. Um, he thinks there's something important about it. And in fact, he thinks, and this is something Levinas also thinks, he thinks there's something important about atheism. Uh, because why is atheism important for him? Because then you are a truly independent self and a separate self. And that's necessary, ultimately, uh, for revelation. So, so, so just to be clear on that. In terms of what then to do, uh, I, this is why he de- devoted um, his short life to adult education. Um, he thought that the way um, that what was needed in his time was uh, making possible an entry into Judaism for um, a uh, community of people who were extremely well educated, um, assimilated, 
but knew nothing about Judaism. So how to allow them in first intellectually um, was what his task was. And he's got some very, very interesting uh, educational essays uh, where you know a lot of his focus is actually on Hebrew and texts, and if, if anyone's interested uh, in that. But, but that's what was, was important. Yes? Um, I, I think that uh, Tigger, I, I know you're oh, not going to I'm sorry. Uh, and then, yeah. <laughs> so, I have a few questions. One, I don't fully understand um, why this relationship, why he doesn't under, why he doesn't view this relationship as mutual. Well, I do understand that he doesn't see it as equal, but why not mutual? Number one. Number two, how do you Islam? And three, um, if in fact he does view it as mutual, does he think that God is also asking the same question? Meaning that first, God is asking, um, love me, and then I have sinned. And in that case, when does God accept that he has sinned, if it is mutual? Okay, good. So three, three big questions, and let me try and remember them. Okay, so the first one is, why isn't it mutual? Yeah, okay. you mentioned that it wasn't mutual. Well, I, I, it's not mutual in the sense that um, mutuality would, would um, it, it implies that the, the relationship itself is dependent on each party agreeing to the relationship. And so another way of putting this would be to maybe say what the difference is between a contract and a covenant. A contract is a mutual arrangement, right? Whereas a covenantal relationship, which is, of course, we're familiar with from the Torah, but also uh, it's a political relationship in a pre-modern context, is between one um, much more powerful party and another. So a covenant, by definition, is not mutual. So I suppose, going back to the question about Rosenzweig on covenant, had he said something about covenant, I think that would have had to have been uh, the emphasis. Does that make sense? Um, okay, so the second question about Islam. Uh, a good question. Rosenzweig actually has a lot to say about Islam. Um, he doesn't like Islam at all. Um, and uh, there's actually a lot of people have written on this. Um, I think what Rosenzweig says about Islam is quite. Uh, he, he's, by the way, I mean, in his interest in Islam, he's not interested in. He doesn't. He's not interested in Muslims. Just to be clear, it's, it's as an intellectual idea. Um, He's, he's just a, he's drawing on a lot of what was then scholarship on Islam in terms of the specific things he says. I think one reason he's critical of Islam and relatively positive about Christianity um, is that he very much is arguing against a tradition of rationalist German Jewish thought in which Judaism and Islam are seen as rational in contrast to Christianity. So even if you think about Maimonides for a second, who's obviously not as much earlier, uh, but um, it, if one wants to emphasize rationality, there is a way in which one can see Judaism and Islam as sharing certain rational tenets. Uh, if one wants to uh, emphasize experience, there's a way in which Judaism and Christianity may have more in common. Now, these are just strands within each tradition, but in a nutshell, Rosenzweig's criticism um, of Islam is actually similar to Maimonides' criticism of, of Islam, uh, which is that Islam lacks, um, from Rosenzweig's point of view, a concept of free will, okay, and that it's all obedience all the time. That would be uh, his claim. And, and it's actually not dissimilar from some of, some of what uh, Maimonides says in the guide about some 
uh, aspects of, of Islam. So just to go back to the atheism issue, atheism is important because there is a will there. Okay, and that's important. Yes, and then there was a third question. Um, no, 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 that was kind of answered. Okay. Because if, I was just saying, if it is mutual, then um, how does God play into the asking questions back, except it isn't mutual? It isn't mutual, and, and Rosenzweig, I, the final thing I'll say is that um, he also, and this is in the last part of the star, but it's also in, in part two, uh, has a, the distinction, which is a uh, often a Kabbalistic distinction, but it's, it's elsewhere between the hidden and the revealed God. So basically, God is in relationship with us, uh, but that, that's not all God is. Uh, yeah. Okay, so why not take one more question and then move to Levinas, because I know you, you had a question. Yes? Um, I was just going to ask, why is it necessary, like, why, why is this such a strong aversion to having our own nation? Like, why does becoming your own nation include the raise of Christianity or whatever? Okay, good. So why, why does he have this aversion? Um, and, I, and I want to emphasize, I mean, Rosenzweig, of course, wrote this before the Holocaust. I mean, it's, you know, I, we shouldn't um, necessarily hold that against him, <laughs> right? Um, I, why, why, I mean, the reason is because um, he argues that if Jews, um, the reason that, that Jews have to remain distinctive. You can remain distinctive, I mean, the nation um, well, I think that's an interesting issue. I think he doesn't think so. Um, and, and one thing I, d I didn't talk about is... Just, I think some words in English probably don't... I mean, we are a nation. She means a state, I think yes. is what she means. Yes, thank um, you. So that's right. That's right. Yeah, so Jews are people, a nation in that sense, but not, not in terms of a modern state. That's what he's against. I mean, he does... Um, I mentioned that he does link what he's saying to uh, anti-Semitism, uh, and he actually has an interpretation of the suffering servant, where he says that basically the Jews suffer for the sins of other people, for the vicariously for the sins of other people because they won't accept the truth of revelation. So he, he, he if, if um, Zionism for him, this idea of independence and self-defense, is actually quite problematic for him theologically. That said, I don't know what, obviously, he would have said uh, after the Holocaust. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, let's um, move into Levinas. Okay. Um, and actually, um, uh, this is a good good transition, in fact. So, Levinas, uh, you see, if you flip over your outline, um, is, um, is Born in 1906, died in 1995. He lived a long life. He was born in Kovno. Um, he was educated in Germany. Uh, was a student of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, probably the two most important 20th century philosophers. Uh, he then uh, went to France, and he was one of the first translators of phenomenology. That's what Heidegger and Husserl were doing uh, into French. Okay. So who is, who is Levinas uh, beyond uh, those basic things? Levinas, um, very much in his mature writings, is responding to the Holocaust. Okay? Uh, he uh, is asking the question of, and this is, this is almost a direct quote from his first major book, which is called Totality and Infinity. Uh, he's asking... Uh, it is of utmost importance to know whether or not we have been duped by morality. 
that's the question that the Holocaust raises for him. Is morality a farce? Um, is, or is it, is it the case that basically the strong always win? Uh, and his whole philosophical um, career and life is dedicated to showing that we are not duped by morality, what he more often calls uh, ethics. And part of what he's trying to do uh, in doing this is to, to say that Judaism offers us um, an answer to this question. Okay. Now, I have, if you look at the, the sheet here, um, under number eight, ethics as an asymmetrical relation. Um, and this is basically Levinas's idea. Um, and what does that mean, ethics as an asymmetrical relation? Ace- it, meaning it's not mutual. Okay, It's one way. I owe you everything, you owe me nothing. Uh, that's his claim. That's what ethics is for him. That's also how he understands Judaism. Uh, that's also how he understands halakha. Whether that's an adequate understanding of halakha or not is a open question, as is the question about uh, Judaism. But this is this is Judaism's uh, contribution to the world. Uh, is this idea of um, being responsible for all others and even for the sins of others? And again, you'll recognize, I hope, uh, the connection with Rosenzweig here, um, and also the connection with this idea of vicarious suffering, which is absolutely central to Levinas. So we look under number eight uh, in terms of, uh, just I have two quotations from, uh, from, uh, from here. Okay, the first one, we are all responsible for everything and guilty in front of everyone, but I am that more than all others. Okay, that's a Levinas quotation of someone. Not who's, his mother. Not his mother. Who's, who's Levinas quoting, anybody? Sorry? No, 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 it's interesting. He didn't like it, but that's another story. Uh, he's actually quoting Dostoevsky, okay, uh, from the Brothers Karamazov, and he quotes this a lot. I'm just mentioning it. Uh, we are all responsible for everything guilty in front of everyone, but I, that, more than all others, okay? The second one, he's also quoting someone. The other's material needs are my spiritual needs. Who's that? Oh. Some important list are already. Exactly. I can't right. remember which one. Rabbi Israel Salanter. Good. Okay, so he's quoting Rabbi Israel Salanter here. And, well, and better than Dr. Okay, well, you know. I, the, I know. Okay. Um, anyway, but I, but I think that um, I, I bring um, both of these quotations here because um, he, he does draw on both, broadly speaking, the kind of Western philosophical tradition, literary tradition, and also on uh, different aspects. Um, of, of the Jewish tradition. So um, let me say a few things about Levinas and then we're going to look at one of his Talmudic uh, readings. Um, Levinas um, was actually um, a soldier uh, in the uh, Second World War fighting for France. Uh, and Levinas got uh, very lucky because when he was captured, um, Jewish soldiers were sent to prisoner of war camps rather than uh, to concentration camps. Uh, and he lived out the war in a prisoner of war camp. His wife and daughter uh, were hidden. Um, and um, after the war, as I said, he, he dedicates himself to answering this question. But like Rosenzweig, uh, the first thing Levinas does is actually uh, work uh, for adult Jewish education. Um, and he does that for many years. 
uh, and uh, eventually uh, he is able to publish some philosophical works and he eventually gets uh, a university uh, position. Now, what what is what I, I gave you like sort of the um, the bottom line for Levinas, right? Uh, the other is material needs or my spiritual needs. We are all responsible for everything, uh, but I more than others. That's the bottom line. On what basis does he make this claim? Okay, he makes this claim um, by exploring in very great detail uh, the way in which human being human beings are fundamentally passive beings. We are beings who are affected by others. And for him, that both shows the way in which um, terrible kinds of things happen, okay, why um, humans can harm each other so much, uh, but also it shows at the same time uh, the ways in which we are, even when we don't recognize it, infinitely responsible for others. We are overwhelmed by the other, he says. And there, there are two responses to that. Well, actually, there are three responses. The three responses are, one, we can just remain uh, in our own sort of self-contained universe, the kind of atheistic universe. Uh, he calls that totality. Um, that's one response. Another response is we can attempt to murder the other. Um, and then a third response uh, is that we um, can respond to the other uh, and respond to the face of the other. The face is Levinas's main metaphor uh, for what the other is. Each face is unique, uh, and the face, he says, is something that we cannot fully understand or fully make our own. Okay, so that's really the, the basis um, of his um, philosophical claims. So what I want you to do now um, is to look at the Levinas handout, um, which is one of his Talmudic uh, readings uh, after the the war. Uh, Levinas studied Talmud with uh, someone named uh, Shushani, who is the same teacher that Elie Wiesel studied with. Not much is known uh, about him. Uh, and um, while Levinas, uh, as I said, was always interested in um, making an argument about why the world needs Judaism in order to understand moral responsibility, he also kept his philosophical writings and what he called his confessional writings separate from one another. So what we're looking at is one of his uh, confessional writings, or one of his Talmudic readings. Um, and I'd like you to now maybe spend about, let's say, uh, 25 minutes uh, reading it. It's quite long. Uh, and so what I'd like you to do is to um, to not to not uh, worry too much about uh, getting it all and necessarily getting what he's trying to do uh, with the Talmud. Though we'll talk about that. Um, but instead, uh, think about a few things. And here's here are the things I'd like you to think about. Um, one is the question of how um, Levinas situates this Talmudic reading in terms of this is at the beginning in terms of what he takes to be a very contemporary problem. Okay. Two, I want you to think about the relationship between the particular and the universal. What's he trying to do there okay, with the particular and the universal? Uh, what I mean by particular and universal is this idea that Judaism and the Talmud and Jewish law are very particular, related to particular people. What's he saying about how that relates to everybody? Um, 
Third, what's he saying about law? Uh, is this halakha? Uh, and fourth, I want you to think about, uh, he, he is someone who uses um, the term, at least in this reading, covenant. What is he saying uh, about covenant here? So if you think about those uh, four things, you don't have to think about them all. What was the first thing? How is he situating um his Talmudic reading in terms of a contemporary problem. That's just at the beginning, and I think that's just very important to, to see the reading. There should be another handout. But we, and we'll get that for you. Yeah, okay, so let's take 25 minutes and do that. Maybe you want to do it with a partner or two? Okay, or not. Um, let, let's start again. I, I, I know this wasn't uh, enough time. It's, it's very uh, dense, but uh, you can all take it home uh, and, and continue uh, to, to, to um, read it. Um, I, let, let's, let's start off um, by uh, thinking a little bit more uh, about Levinas's view of um, responsibility and of, and of ethics, because clearly... Uh, this Talmudic reading is about that. It is about responsibility. Uh, it's about responsibility uh, for all. Uh, but I want one final time here to go back to the question of gender uh, and look at how actually his use of gender terms in his philosophical works relates to his understanding of responsibility. Uh, and then we will look at how he teases this same idea uh, out of uh, the Talmud, okay? So if you look at your, um, if you look at your sheet under number nine, what's gender got to do with it? One thing that's um, interesting, and it may just be that I sort of just collect these references to maternity and wounds in uh, these male Jewish philosophers, but I think it's quite striking uh, that uh, at least in the 20th century these are so common. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's important because um, one of the things it tells us is, I, I don't think it tells us that these men are particularly concerned with women, not that they're anti-women, but that I don't think that's the issue. I think what it tells us is that they're trying to find some kind of language to articulate a sense of vulnerability and what it is to be human in, in light of what they see as modernity's emphasis on reason uh, and strength and a kind of uh, masculine ethos in that sense. So um, under number nine, this, this quotation about maternity is from Levinas's um, second major work. I mentioned the first major work, Totality and Infinity. The second major work is called Otherwise Than Being or Beyond Existence. It's actually beyond essence, uh, but I'm going to leave that. Okay, and this is what he has to say here. Um, he says, is not the restlessness of someone persecuted but a modification of maternity, the groaning of the wounded entrails by those it will bear or has borne. In maternity, what signifies is a responsibility for others to the point of substitution for others and suffering both from the effect of persecution and from the persecuting itself in which the persecutor sinks. Maternity, which is bearing par excellence, bears even responsibility for the persecuting by the persecutor. So this is, this is quite provocative, um, I think. Uh, what, what he's saying here um, is that the maternal relation uh, is the ethical relation um, in the sense that 
uh, it's a one-way relation. Uh, it's, it, it is the epitome of asymmetry. Why? Uh, because um, the fetus um, it relies completely uh, on the mother. The mother has complete responsibility for the fetus, and the fetus has no responsibility for the mother. But even more than that, um, the fetus can, and he, he's using this term here, can persecute the mother, right? I mean, the, the fetus can uh, take uh, nutrition from the mother. The fetus can also cause all kinds of other problems for uh, the mother, but that doesn't end the mother's uh, responsibility for the fetus. So it's a very, very, um, I think, provocative uh, idea. Um, and I think uh, it's provocative um, with this connection to persecution. Because Levinas's argument about human responsibility is, as he says here, we are responsible not just for ourselves, not just for other people, but we're even responsible for the persecutor who's persecuting us. That's how far responsibility goes. And one thing that's important to see here is that whatever one thinks about whether this is a good description of maternity or not, what Levinas's point is is that this is every single person's relationship to other people. Okay? This kind of responsibility is like uh, the responsibility uh, a mother has uh, to, to her fetus. So a very strong claim. Yes. Uh, I don't see the word fetus in there. Why? Well, I, I said that, yes. Yeah, so I, I just... There's a difference, right? The fetus is not born yet. So I think a mother's responsibility to a baby, he said, or is born. He said that it will bear or has born. So a mother's creating a person is not just a genetic. It says will bear. Will bear or has born. Right. Okay. No, excellent. Excellent. Yes. No, excellent. And I appreciate your calling me on that. I guess the reason I was going too far in this way has to do with the second quotation, which also comes up elsewhere in, in his work, um, where he says, uh, to suffer from another is to have charge of him, to support him, to be in his place, to be consumed by him. Every love or every hatred of a neighbor as reflected attitude presupposes this prior vulnerability, this mercy, rachamim, this groaning of the entrails. And then he's got a footnote. Uh, where he notes the connection between Rechem for womb and Rachamim for mercy. Uh, so um, I think I will stand by what I said. <laughs> Only in, I mean, you're, you're right, but I think that he, he really wants to um, use this. I think it, it is a metaphor here. Um, he, he wants to use this, this metaphor to describe um, how deep our responsibility is for others. Um, and I think once again we see uh, his the, the use of w a womb coming up. We have a womb in Rosenzweig, a womb in Buber. Yes. 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 Sounds more than vaguely Christian to me. It's like you're always wrong. You never have any rights. You're always the bad guy. The other guy is more important than you are. It's like as I said in that little story, you know, yeah. the little kid says, "What are we here for?" Sunday school Christian Sunday school teacher says. They help others, and the kid says, well, what are the others here for? Like, is the other person supposed to feel that way, too? Um, well, I, th I think it's an interesting... I think there are many people who, who would think this sounds uh, Christian. 
I guess, though, um, where I would push back against that is uh, in, in a couple of ways. One, um, I think that, that this idea of vicarious suffering and responsibility uh, for the deeds of others is actually a very Jewish idea. Um, it's, it's, it's something we encounter in Isaiah. We find it in rabbinic literature. We find it in a lot of medieval material. Um, I think it is actually quite quite uh, a, a, um, a central Jewish idea. At the same time, Levinas is not saying uh, that we're always wrong and that we're intrinsically bad. In fact, what he's saying is that if you true human freedom and true human dignity comes from embracing this responsibility for that we have for others, we're not depraved. Um, which I think, and not all, there are different strands of the Christian tradition, of course, but most strands do see sin in terms of human depravity. This is not Levinas' claim. His claim is this is why it's such a glorious thing to be a human being, because we are indeed responsible for so much. Uh, And I think it's very connected also to the Musar movement, and he draws on some of those sources. Um, But I I use this... um, this, these quotations um, about maternity and persecution just to give a sense of um, really what, what he's trying to say. Uh, and I think you, you should think about it um, in, the, in the sense of do you believe um, or, uh, that you have the same responsibility uh, to any person that you would encounter anywhere uh, that you would have to say a family member. I think this is this is a really a, a really interesting question, and it's an interesting question that comes up also in the Talmudic reading. Yes. How is he defining responsibility? Well, respon- right. It's a good question. How's it defined? Responsibility means um, that you have to do everything you can do uh, to help the other person. Yeah. <laughs> How far does that go? Well, I think it's a question. A lot of people, a lot of people yeah. uh, read Levinas as um, saying, as, as Levinas does talk about ethics, right? So they think Levinas is going to um, tell us what we should be doing, right? Well, what should I do in X situation? I think what's important to see is that that's not his project. Um, he's not at all claiming that he can tell anybody what they should do in particular, in a particular instance. What he's saying is we are the kind of beings or the kind of creatures who are infinitely responsible. He's answering the question of who are we as human beings. And he's saying as human beings we are ethical creatures even when the worst kinds of persecution are taking place. Yes? So how does that relate to um, self-responsibility? Because if you are infinitely responsible you will eventually negate yourself because why should you feed yourself? Why should you sleep? Okay, it's a good question, and I mean, it's a, and and actually, I'm, I I think I'm going to try and answer it maybe with a Talmudic reading if I can do it. Um, it. But I think that what's important to see is that he's actually not making an argument for um, uh, a self-abnegation. Okay, what he's saying is that human agency or human freedom really comes in bearing this responsibility for the other. So I mentioned atheism briefly. Uh, and I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, kind of long story. But for Levinas, uh, as for Rosenzweig, there's a place for atheism in life, or there's a place for the independent uh, will. There's a place for actually what he calls enjoyment. Um, but these exist in tension with one another. 
Um, so you do have to take care of yourself. Um, but you're not being ethical when you do that. It doesn't mean you're being bad. Okay? Does that make sense? Can you explain it further? Um, well, I think I think what he's talking about is is is, is the kind of tension that we have to live with um, as human beings. On the one hand, we do have to be responsible for ourselves and for those closest to us, um, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our responsibility is is infinite. So part of what that means is that um, in the same way that we discussed very briefly how the Song of Songs is all about a longing that can't be fulfilled. Levinas is also suggesting that, you know, the goal of life isn't to be happy <laughs> or to be content. It's to really uh, embrace uh, what, what could be seen as a burden of being a, a human being, but, but that really, once again, is the glory of the human being. Does that make sense? And also just, uh, he actually, in other places, talks about if you're face-to-face with someone, you can kill them, right? So you're not killing them, and where does your, so that's how you could. He was around people that killed other people, and he survived the camp and all this. I mean, you have to put yourself into the text and into the mind of the person writing it, because it's very hard, sorry to say a little bit too long, but it's very hard for us in America who are taught yourself, yourself, yourself. It's very hard for us even to understand. These people, both authors today, are some of are trying to give us the real truth that they see in these texts. They're not playing a game. And the real truth is, in life, you can be killed by the other. Every time you're not killed, every time you don't kill someone, that's a decision that you're making. Now, if you're making that decision, where is the end of that decision? Where's the logical end of that? And that is infinite responsibility to the other person, which they find in these texts that we pray with or to or learn from. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask you a question, because he, t- he spends a lot of time talking about the mode, um, you know, the need to learn, and then the Lila mode to teach, as if, you know, in other words, they actually happen at the same time, you know, in other words, really emphasizing that you really need to teach others. And, and is that really the part of his teaching that refers to what you're speaking about, or is there something else here? Yes, no, okay, thanks, right. I, so in the reading, which we're going to get to now, this um, Lil Mode and Lil Ahmed uh, to, to learn and to, to, um, to, be, to teach, um, I, one of the things he does emphasize there, and we'll, we'll look at that, is, is that what they all have to do with all four, um, all four modes that he's describing um, have to do with hearing and receiving the other. So what we're getting, yes, but that's exactly, yes, it is the same point. Let's just take one more and then we'll go to the... Are you saying you're responsible for bearing the other person's sin or, or their suffering? Or, is sin suffering mean, my mind is equates suffering with sin. So is he, is he equating the two or I mean, is he saying responsible for bearing the person's sins? No, that's a good question. I, the question is, uh, is Levy not saying that we're responsible for bearing the sins of others or, or just their suffering? I think, I think he means something more, more simple. Um, it, he, I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't have this idea of um, suffering comes from sins. Uh, that's not his his view. Um, what he says is is that basically, um, you know, if people have done terrible things, um, if let's give an example close to his own uh, experience, I mean, the Nazis have done uh, obviously really horrendous things. What does it mean to say that? Um, I'm responsible for the Nazis. I mean, that, that, that seems uh, offensive, right? But I think what he's saying is that it's my job to make the world a better place. So it's in that sense that I'm responsible. 
uh, it, it, you know, is that just be, I mean, precisely because people have done such horrible things, uh, it doesn't give us an excuse. Uh, doesn't, you're never off the hook. I think that's really his point, is you're never off the hook uh, for anything. Yes. Yes. Thanks. I, 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 don't, I don't think I'll re- repeat it, but I'll just say in just brief, just so everybody... Did everyone hear? Yes, I couldn't. Well, I think the point that it was very eloquent, so I apologize for my uh, ineloquent way of, of, of summarizing, but, but the point is, is, that, um, is that while this idea may sound very disturbing, being responsible for the, you know, the persecution of the persecutor, uh, it is actually uh, the only way in which uh, one can get beyond uh, being a victim and one can retain some sense of freedom and, and agency. I mean, the, the, it was, again, far more eloquent th- than that. But I think that, I think, I think that, and it does come out of Levinas' own uh, experience. I think he does want to say something even a bit stronger than that, right? I mean, the way you've described it, which I think is very helpful, um, is, is maybe could be described as a strategy, for how do you you know how do you cope in life and and that's obviously uh, very important, but I think Levinas wants to make an even stronger claim and say that this is who we are. We are not victims, um, and um, we we are all, we are responsible. Um, and I, yeah, so okay. I, I I I can I have an extra five minutes? Yeah. Okay. I'm saying okay. I apologize. Because um, um, I do, I feel bad that we. we I want to get to the the text, okay? And there's so much uh, to say about it, uh, obviously. Um, but um, in order to to maybe get um, to to some of the point, let me let me just try and, and summarize a few things, and then maybe I'll take a, a few final questions. Is, is that okay? Okay. Um, also, I, I was going to say uh, Wendy asked me to, to say something about his own educational background, and I think. Um, Levinas did have a Jewish education in Kovno. 
Uh, his parents owned a bookstore, so they, I know the reason I mentioned that is that he had both a kind of secular education and a Jewish education. But I think the extent of his Jewish education was probably fairly limited. And it's really only uh, after the war when he encounters this teacher, uh, a survivor, Shushani, um, that he really uh, develops his um, Jewish learning. Uh, but so much so that he becomes uh, a teacher uh, as well. Okay, so let, let's just focus um, on, a, on a few things. Okay, so the, the situation, the context of, of this lecture, and this was a lecture, um, is, you know, Levinas is asking this question, um, how is it that we can, as individuals, be connected to other people? We live, in, even though he's writing this, I think, before there was an internet, <laughs> uh, it, it is very much a kind of internet age question. Um, you know, we're, we're more connected than ever, but also more isolated. Uh, that's, his, that's his question. Uh, and his answer is going to be, well, actually, it turns out uh, that the Talmud has an answer to this question. Okay? So what is the answer to this question? Um, he takes, sorry, he takes this discussion um, of... Um, what seems to be uh, very particular laws, right, uh, as recounted in uh, Deuteronomy 27 um, and uh, in the Gemara and in the Mishnah, uh, and this discussion of law as one could read it as uh, being um, this is the law, uh, these are the blessings, these are the curses, right? So in this very kind of... Um, one could read this in a very kind of reductive way, right? Um, these are the laws. If you follow them, um, you're going to get uh, a reward. If you don't follow them, you're going to be punished, okay? And what Levinas wants to show um, is that actually that's the wrong way to read this. And what the, what the Talmud is doing is showing that, um, th that actually human responsibility um, and actually the spirit of the law lives in this kind of letter of the law. So to come back to Christianity for one second, um, part of what Levinas is responding to is a, what is often an implicit criticism of Judaism by Christians, a long tradition of this. The idea being that Judaism is all about the letter of the law, but Christianity is about the spirit. So what Levinas is doing here is he's trying to show that the letter of the law is the spirit of the law. Exactly. Okay. And, and you will have noticed, of course, um, on page 72, Five, for instance, he talks about the written Torah and the oral Torah um, and really wants to um, bring this point uh, home. So his, his, his reading of um, the Gemara is actually somewhat straightforward, I think, uh, which is he wants to say that these very particular laws given to very particular people, and not just to the Jewish people, but to particular parts of the Jewish people, to different tribes standing in different places, are made universal. Uh, by the Gemara. They made universal not by saying um, now uh, here's the universal rule but rather they're made universal through their particularity through their translation uh, into something more universal. Okay, so what does that mean? Anyone have any idea what that means? <laughs> I was hoping you would. That's not I mean, well, let's see. I mean, 
Good. Okay, so my question was, um, how is it that he's saying that these particular laws become universal? And the, and the answer was, he's saying that there's a much broader scope to the laws than the literal laws suggest. Yes? Uh, by being translated to so many different languages, he's saying exactly. law relates to every characteristic of each nation. Great. Okay, so by the, exactly, by being translated into 70 different languages, it relates to each characteristic um, of each nation. Thank you. But for him, this one could read that, of course, as saying, okay, well, now we you know, just have these same laws in 70 different languages. But what, what's at the heart of this for Levinas, what's at the heart of this translation, uh, is this um, attempt to respond to others, to articulate oneself, one's own language, in different terms. Yes? Yeah, uh, uh, Christianity, another trope in Christianity is that Jews are particular and they're trying to open it up to the universal, open God up to everybody. And one example is the charging of interest within the group. You treat the tribe differently than people outside the group. So Christianity going to people who aren't circumcised, who don't accept the law and all that, is an opening up of the truth of Judaism to the outside, which relates back to Rosenzweig. He talks about the individual and the universal or the particular, the all and the, um, well, the everything. Everything in creation is part of the all that is creation. Each creature is just one thing, but God is all. And anyway, th- these are deep, deep, big ideas that you're talking about, and I'm talking about quickly. But uh, so the question, I mean, the, the dichotomy is between the universal, which is everybody and everything in the universe, also, and the particular, which is a particular tribe, but also each individual person as an individual person or creature. Okay, great. Okay, that, that's, that's, um, that's very helpful, right? So, I mean, part of what Levinas is trying to say is that true universality actually comes from particularity. I know I said that before, but let me say it a little more clearly, which is to say that um, what, what universality really is, uh, is translation. Okay, we talked a little bit also before about uh, Rosenzweig and Buber's translations, and this is a big theme, both as a literal kind of task translation, but also as a more of a philosophical or ethical or theological task, um, trying to explain yourself to another person or to another group of people. That, for Levinas, um, is true, um, true universality. So true universality isn't this idea that everything's the same for everyone. Instead, it's actually recognizing the uniqueness of each person by trying to speak to that person, um, by trying to explain yourself to that person, if that makes sense. And this is what he sees uh, the Talmud doing with the biblical text uh, in moving to this discussion of um, uh, 70 people, uh, 70 languages, sorry. So what, 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 yes? Right, so the question is, um, uh, you know, is the translation into these 70 different languages for a particular purpose, meaning this nation should do that, that nation should do this? Is is that the the question? I think, no, I think what he wants to say um, is that, no, the the task itself is translation. The point of it is that the goal in itself is translation, because translation is 
giving yourself to another. Um, when you have to translate yourself, you have to justify yourself before before others. And it's that act that's important for him, not the not the specific outcome of those acts. Was there a hand there? A little, a little out of here, sorry. Okay, good. So the question is, uh, if you translate to uh, an, a, a particular person, how is that universal? Because it's just another person. I think his answer um, is that you just have to continue translating to you know people continuously. Uh, everyone has to translate for everyone to everyone else. And so I think part of what there are two things that are important about that is once again, what's important for him is is the act. Uh, it's not it's not an outcome of the act, right? It's not that, oh, now we finally got the you know uh, most excellent translation ever. It's that we have to continually renew our translations. Um, so that that's one one um, aspect that's 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 um, very important. And another aspect that's important is that he, he really does want to focus on the interpersonal. Uh, he thinks, let's go back to, I don't, yesterday I mentioned you know, why Boober doesn't like law, because the law treats everyone the same uh, under the law. Um, for for Levinas, uh, he doesn't like this idea of universality in which um, the same truth or the same expression of truth uh, is given to everyone. To accept, so the, the messiness of it, the the continual act, is what what he's interested in. Yes. I guess I mean you sort of just touched on this now, but, but I, I, I guess I was I feel like the the term like when we talk about in terms of universality, like if I'm understanding it correctly, like maybe it's a little bit misleading because it's not like it seems like it's not um, a like a trans like universal in the sense that you have sort of a translation or an idea that works for everyone. It works for I won't repeat it, just since it, right, it, but, but I'll just, nonetheless, I can't stop myself. It's, it's, um, you're right, it's not universality in all those senses, but I do think it's significant he still wants to use the term universality, because part of what he's trying to do is, of course, something that philosophers often try and do, which is to uh, re, um, reinterpret a term that everyone uses. He's saying, look, you people think you know what universality is. That's not universality. This is really universality. But you're right. It's completely contrary to the way in which universality as something general and applicable to all is understood. Well, so here, like you're talking about in terms of, like you said, the two universality actually sort of comes from this particularity, and that's sort of focusing on the positive side. But like I guess the flip side is that he's working against some kind of like I guess false universality, yeah. which I guess he's saying. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Similarly, in the way that Rosenzweig wants to say that love is actually command. Right. So do you, do you want to yeah. have your concluding remarks and then take questions? Yes, again? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm, yes, I apologize. Yes, I would like to have my concluding remarks, and I, and I apologize that we've given this text less, less attention. What I'd like to conclude with um, is actually on page uh, 80 um, of this reading. Um, and I think this in many ways uh, summarizes uh, Levinas's um, understanding of this text and also his understanding of ethics. I think it also summarizes uh, Rosenzweig's view of uh, revelation and the human being along with uh, what Buber is trying to do with dialogue. Uh, and this has to do um, with um, the context here is uh, Levinas's understanding uh, of teaching, okay? Uh, so he says, uh, beginning on the last line of 79, he says, transmission thus involves a teaching which is already outlined in the very receptivity for learning it. Receptivity is prolonged. True learning consists in receiving the lesson so deeply that it becomes a, necess a necessity to give oneself to the other. The lesson of truth is is not held in one man's consciousness, it explodes towards the other. To study well, to read well, to listen well is already to speak, whether by asking questions and in so doing, teaching the master who teaches you or by teaching a third party. So this idea of receptivity, uh, this idea of, of speaking and listening um, is really summarizes, I think, uh, Buber, uh, Rosenzweig, and Levinas's uh, view of the human being. Um, I will just conclude by saying that uh, I appreciate being taught by you, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed this uh, very much, and I think that um, much of what uh, Levinas is saying here, that he captures here, um, whether we uh, agree or disagree with other things he said, I do think he does capture something very important here uh, about uh, Jewish learning. So, thank you. Thank you. Should I take a question?